So now I guess I'm going to invite up uh, Scott Holly. My understanding is that, Scott, you preached the very first sermon of Green Tree Church. Is that right? True. True. So this is a lovely and appropriate way to end our time here um, at Kirkwood, North Kirkwood. Thanks, Joe. And if I remember correctly, didn't you lead the music, Scott, in the very first worship service? So Scott Monterbergi and Jackie Johnson led the prayer. So Jackie, so there are some, some of the old guard. This is an awesome day, isn't it? I mean, this is really, really moving and exciting. And it's a, it's a bittersweet day, too. Because even though we're excited about leaving the Bulldog Cafe, the Bulldog Cafe has been a place in which God has been at work. You think about all the people who stood right here at the base of the stage, and Doug and Judy Herman and the prayer team have prayed for them. And think about everybody in this room who's come forward for prayer with them since we've been in this building, and how meaningful that has been to you. Think about all the babies who have been baptized right here, and the Tom or one of the other pastors who carried down this center aisle and and many of you have laid your hands upon those babies and said a silent prayer for them. Some of those babies are now teenagers. Some of them are maybe seniors in high school. This has been a very special place. And in our excitement to move into the new building, let's not lose sight of what God has done here and how good he's been to us in this place. Some of you have met the Lord in this room. Some of you have made lifelong friends. Some of you may even have met your future husband or wife. God has been at work here, and that's really been the story of Green Tree Community Church. When I look back upon that first church service in the music room at Westminster Christian Academy, some 40 people who had no clue, no clue what they were doing. And as, as you may have heard us say before, the, the early operative slogan of Green Tree, Green Tree was, we may be idiots, but we're God's idiots. And that has been proven out again and again. The fact that we're idiots, yes, but that God has been in charge. God is sovereign, God is good, and God has carried us through the ups, the downs, the trials, the tribulations, but mostly the joys that have been in the history of Green Tree Community Church. So this is a day to celebrate. It is a day to celebrate. And I want to say then the things I'm going to say in the next several minutes, it's not going to be a particularly formal sermon, which some of you may, might make some of you very happy. Um, but it's going to be more some reflections, just on where we've been and where we're going and, and what God has done and his goodness to us. This church has been from day one about him. And I hope that on the last day of the Bulldog Cafe, it will be about him. And carrying forward in the new building, it will always be about him. So let me open in prayer, and then we'll jump into what we really want to get to today. Father, you are a good and gracious God, and you have demonstrated that to us again and again and again and again, and we are so grateful. We're humbled, Lord, by allowing ordinary people like us, people who mess things up so badly, to be used by you to do your will. Father, you put your hand upon this church in ways that astonish us, and we just come before you today with a great sense of gratitude for who you are and what you've done. And may this time this morning, our last time in the Bulldog Cafe and in this building, be used to honor you. And we ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. On February 5th, 2012, Michael Denkoff, who's one of the 
elders at this church stood right in this spot and made an announcement that nobody wanted to hear. To set the context of that announcement, we had purchased in 2010 the Alpine shop on North Kirkwood Road, knowing that their lease was going to expire at the end of, in December 2011, and the hope was that they would walk away from their lease and we would be able to move into that building, retrofit it, and it would become our new worship home. However, there was one sticking point, and that was this. The proprietors of the Alpine shop had the right to exercise an option to renew their lease for another five years when that lease ended at the end of 2011. And in fact, they could, at the end of that first extension of their lease, at the end of 2016, could re-up for another five years. And so when 2011 ended, there was a great sense of anticipation. What, is, what are they going to do? What's this going to mean? How will this play out for us? And Michael stood before us on February 5th, 2012, and announced to the congregation that, they had to, that the Alpine shop had decided to re-up, that we were going to be locked out of that building for five years and maybe for ten. There was a palpable sense of disappointment that rippled through the building. But Michael said something that morning which stuck with me and which I think is a great reminder both for the context of what happened that day and for really our lives as Christians. This is what he said, and I'm going to quote him. I don't know what this means, but I do know it's good news since God has something better for us. God has a better plan. Next week, we're going to see that better plan come to fruition when we move into the new building. We thought we were going down a certain path, and God said, no, I have something better for you. He changed the direction of this church in a way we didn't anticipate. And although Michael Denkoff hardly fits the model of a biblical, biblical prophet, he was, in fact, a prophet that day. <laughs> you are working on the beard, but it needs to be longer. He was a prophet because he really was putting his finger on one of the central, central ideas that we see again and again and again in Scripture. And that is that people think their lives are going a certain way, and all of a sudden God intervenes and says, no, I have something better for you, something far more than you ever could begin to anticipate. Let me prove it. Think about Moses. Moses got this nice, comfortable, cushy life as a shepherd. Now, I know that there's an occasional threat from a bear or a lion, I guess, as a shepherd, but it can't be that hard of a job, right? And one day God appears to him in the form of a burning bush and says, hey, Moses, I got something for you here. I want you to walk in to the court of the most powerful man in the Middle East, and I want you to tell him that he should willingly give up his slaves to provide the economic backbone of his entire empire. Would you do that for me? And Moses says, yeah, right. He says, in fact, no, I don't want to do it. Ask somebody else. But God says, Moses, you thought your life was going this direction. You thought the nation of Israel was going in this direction. I've got a different plan for you. I've got a different plan for your people. And you're vital to my plan. And that changed everything. He did the same thing with David. David, too, is a shepherd, the youngest of Jesse's sons. David has, again, a fairly predictable, stable life. And all of a sudden, the prophet Samuel comes to him and says, David, even though you're just a teenager, and even though you're the youngest of Jesse's sons, you're going to be the next king of Israel. And David says, are you kidding me? David had a vision for his life that was radically different than what God's intentions were, and it changed everything. 
Happens in the New Testament with Mary, doesn't it? Mary's about to get married to Joseph. The angel comes and says, Mary, we have a different plan for you. You're going to become the mother of the Messiah. To Peter, who's got a predictable, successful career as a fisherman, Jesus says, no, give that up, walk away. I've got a better plan for you. And then Paul. Paul's in a position of power among the Jewish elders. Jesus appears to Paul and says, I want you to give up all your privilege and all your prestige. You're going to become my missionary of the Gentiles. You're going to travel around the Mediterranean area. You're going to be beaten. You're going to be stoned. You're going to be imprisoned. Ultimately, you're going to be executed. That's a good deal, right? And Paul says, yes, God had a better plan. That's something we need to remember as a church. It's something we need to remember as individuals. Because there are going to be times in each of our lives where God is going to come to us and say, you thought your life was going in this direction. It's going to go in this direction. And are we going to trust him when that happens? And as a church, there are going to be things that are going to happen to us in the next 5, 10, 15, 50 years, which we can't predict, which are going to take us in directions we cannot in any way foresee, and in some cases might make us very uncomfortable. Are we going to remember that God is sovereign, that God has a better plan? Do we trust him? If the last almost 19 years of Green Tree Community Church ought to prove anything, it is that we can trust God. He's been more than faithful in ways that are really extraordinary. The problem for us, though, and the problem for all people, human nature, is when we reach a milestone like we're going to reach next week, the tendency is to, is to want to step back, pat ourselves on the back in self-congratulation and say, mission accomplished. Look what we've done. Pretty cool, huh? Look at us. I mean, think about what happened in the 60s in the United States. In June of 1961, President Kennedy stood on the campus of Rice University, and he announced the goal to place a man on the moon by the end of the decade. For the next eight years, the resources of the American scientific community and the federal government were directed toward that end. So that in July 1969, when Apollo 11 space, space mission went to the moon and Neil Armstrong and then Buzz Aldrin stepped on the surface of the moon, there's a sense of national and indeed international jubilation. Mission accomplished. The goal of mankind for thousands of years to put a man on the moon had been achieved. But then what? Nothing. Or really, little. If you were to talk to scientific experts back in the late 60s on the occasion of the moon landing and said, what, what's the future of space travel? They would have said, well, by the turn of the century, we'll have a colony on the moon. We'll have sent manned man missions to Mars. None of it's happened. Why? We lost our vision. We became complacent. We said, mission accomplished. And mission accomplished is the enemy of the church. That sense of complacency is dangerous. Let's think about that in biblical terms. Think about the life of David. I want, to, I want us to look at 2 Samuel 11.1, 1, some of the saddest words in the entire Old Testament, and, and these words from the life of David. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and, and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. That last line, but David remained in Jerusalem. 
our words are filled with tragedy. David, as it says, as the king, should have been with his army. That was his job. That was his duty. That was the expectation. But David had become complacent. David had said, you know what? This country is powerful. This country has become great through my leadership, and it's time for me to step back and take a rest, take it easy. Joab is competent. He can do this. And so David remained in Jerusalem. And what followed? That day he saw Bathsheba on the roof of her home, summoned him to her palace, and what followed was adultery and deception and murder and ultimately civil war. It was tragedy for David, for his family, for Bathsheba and her family, and for the nation of Israel. David became complacent. David became smug. And he didn't learn his lesson. Because later on, much later in his reign, he summoned Joab once more. And in 2 Samuel 24, verses 2 and 3, we get this story. So the king, that's David, said to Joab and the army commanders with him, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, may the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king want to do such a thing? Now David's Desire seems fairly innocuous, doesn't it? He wants to number the troops he has in his army. And it seems like that would be a prudent thing to do. But Joab chastises him for that because he recognizes that what's behind this is not a desire to make sure the army is well-equipped or well-supplied. It's instead a statement of ego. Here's David once again wanting to bask in his accomplishments, wanting to say to the people or to himself, look what I've done. Look at how mighty this country has become. I've expanded the borders. I've filled the coffers. My army is mighty. Look what I've done. There's a sense of smug self-satisfaction that Joab recognizes a statement of great danger because here's David, a man whose life has been guided by God, who suddenly become very proud. And Joab warns David. David doesn't listen. And once again, judgment falls upon David and the nation of Israel because of his arrogance. Joab is trying to tell David, this is about what God has done, not what you have done. And that's really the message that we need to remember. Here we are at Green Tree Community Church. We've reached a milestone in the life of this church in moving into this new building. I guess you could say, in a sense, we moved through infancy and adolescence, and now we're moving into adulthood as a church. I guess you could say it that way. And that could be an occasion for us, again, to pat ourselves on the back. And if we do that, we become exactly the kind of church that I think we pray we never become. I want you to look at a painting that you've all seen before. A painting by Vincent van Gogh, Starry Night. This is a painting that has been reproduced on posters and probably must have hung on somebody's dorm room when you were in college. If you, if you, look at, if you think about van Gogh, there's really two things that people tend to know about him. One is his distinctive style. I mean, the, the flamboyance of his colors and the flamboyance of the swirls of color in that painting are, are so dramatic. It's, I'm not an art, art historian, but even I can pick out a painting by Van Gogh because his, his style is so unique and distinctive. The other thing that most people know about Van Gogh is he struggled with madness all of his life, or much of his life. What a lot of people do not know about Van Gogh, however, is that he was a devout Christian. 
In fact, as a young man, he studied to go into the ministry. He felt called to the ministry. He was a member of the Dutch Reformed Church, and he was assigned by the Dutch Reformed Church to serve as an intern in a rural village in the, in the southern Netherlands. The pastor of that church welcomed Van Gogh, and Van Gogh began to make himself at home, and he looked around the village where he was assigned, and he began to, to see that the needs of the people were extraordinarily high because there was, a great, there was great poverty in that town. So he began to spend his time with the widows, with the orphans, with the poor, with the dispossessed, and that became the focal point of his ministry. The senior pastor was disturbed by that. In his mind, the, view, the, the role of the church was to minister to the needs of the members of the church. This was a church that was comfortably middle class. The people who attended that church were prosperous. And he didn't want the poor, the dispossessed, to attend his church. He did not welcome Van Gogh's ministry at all. In fact, ordered him not to pursue it any longer. Van Gogh defied him. He continued to reach out to the poor. The senior pastor appealed to the church fathers at the central office, and they recalled Van Gogh. They essentially fired him, said, you're not fit for ministry. This painting was painted partially in response to that experience. Starry night. When you see the painting, our eyes are, of course, quickly drawn to the beauty and the majesty and the glory of the night sky. It's hard not to look at this painting and think of the words of the psalmist, the heavens declare the glory of God. That's exactly what Van Gogh wanted us to think. It's exactly what he wanted us to see. But there's more to the painting than that, and the resolution of this painting blown up is not great. If you go home and look at this online, you can see it much more clearly. But let me walk you through it. If you look at the painting, you see here and here and here and here and back here, down here, you see little points of light emanating from the homes in the village. These are places in Van Gogh's mind of refuge, of family, of love, of security, of places where people can go to find comfort, a place where they belong. These are the lives of the ordinary villagers in this, in this small town. Again, places of refuge. There's one building in the painting that is entirely dark. It's the church. No light beams from the church. It's entirely dark. And that's Van Gogh's statement about the condition of the church. He never lost his faith in God. He did lose his faith in the church. To him, the church became forlorn and dark and unwelcoming and a place that had lost its first love and had lost its sense of mission. You can find the life of the church in the lives of ordinary people, Van Gogh is saying in this painting. You can find the beauty of God in the heavens, but you can't find it in the church. If we see the move in the new building as a milestone, as an opportunity to pat ourselves on the back and say, look what we've become, then we risk becoming that church, stale, forlorn, desolate, and out of touch with the reality of what God wants us to be. There is another way of looking at the mission that God has given us. There's another way of looking at what will happen next week. And we can see that best in Joshua 4, 1 to 9. Let me give you some context there. The nation of Israel has been freed from slavery 
They've crossed the Red Sea. They've been to Mount Sinai. They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And now they've crossed into the Promised Land. Moses is dead. Joshua has taken over. The nation of Israel, again, has crossed the Jordan River. And at that point, God says to Joshua these words. Choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan from right where the priests are standing and carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God in the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones would be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua, and they carried them over with them to their camp, where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they are there to this day. God said to Joshua, build a memorial. Build a memorial so that in future years, people can walk by this spot, and, and their children can ask their fathers, can ask their mothers, what do those stones mean? And the fathers and mothers will have occasion to say, I want to tell you about what God has done for us. What God did for us, what God is doing for us, and what God wants to do through us. If every time we walk by Green Tree Community Church, the new building, we walk into the new building, drive by the new building, if we see it as a memorial to the goodness of God, testifying to what he has done, what he is doing, and what he has yet to do, if that's our mindset, we see it as a place of ministry, of God's goodness, of God's grace, of God's power. If that's how we regard it, not as a milestone measuring what we've done or accomplishments of the past, but as a memorial reminding us of who he is and what he's calling us to be, then we will be the kind of church that God wants us to be. Not the kind of church Van Gogh painted dark and detached and desolate, but a church that's alive and vibrant and seeking to do God's business. Michael Denkoff said another thing that day in February 2012 that we should be reminded of as well. In our preparation for the potential move, a series of focus groups were held among members of this congregation. And Michael stood here and reported that the number one concern for people of Green Tree as revealed by those focus groups, was that we not change. That we not change. Now, I get that. There's a DNA to this church that makes it very appealing to those who've chosen to make it their church home. But I'll tell you what. If we're not going to change, then why have we spent all this time and all this energy and all this money in building a new building? We're going to change. We have to change. We would be radically disobedient if we did not change Mike Greenwood might actually have to sit somewhere other than the front row at Green Tree when he moved into the new building. And Earl Hopper, I don't even know if there's a center aisle for you to sit in. I don't know. But the changes are going to be far more profound than that. There are going to be opportunities for ministry 
There are going to be people involved in ministry who we don't even know exist. If Green Tree Community Church in 2020 looks the same as it does in 2015, then shame on us. Shame on us. It's interesting that God chooses to most vociferously condemn those people who are reluctant to change more than anybody else in the New Testament. Think about it. The Pharisees, they like, the way, they like things the way they are. And Jesus calls them vipers, whitened sepulchers. He has nothing but contempt for them because they are reluctant to embrace change. They think they've got it all figured out. They're smug, complacent, self-satisfied. Jesus says, no way. Paul does the same thing to the Jewish converts to Christianity who want to impose upon the Gentile converts to Christianity Jewish laws and traditions. Paul is disgusted by them, so much so that he says, you ought to go emasculate yourselves. That's how little respect he has for those people. He's saying, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, and Paul is saying to the Judaizers, which is what they're called, you people are stuck you people are reluctant to change. You have to change. I was involved in an organization that moved from one building to another in my professional career. As many of you know, I taught at Westminster Christian Academy for a long time. And in 2012, I think it was, we moved from an inadequate, overcrowded facility on Ladue Road to a Taj Mahal of a facility in town and country. What's interesting is that if you would ask any of the administrators who were serving on the administrative team at that time about that year, they would say it was the most difficult year of our entire tenure because there was a great deal of angst among the faculty. There was more complaining, more unhappiness among the faculty that year than any other year that I ever served at Westminster Christian Academy. Why? We all had to change. We had to make adjustments. There were new policies put in place. People who had taught next to each other for years and years were suddenly separated by in different wings of the building. It was difficult to maintain the same sense of community we'd had in the old building. All kinds of things changed, and it caused a great deal of unhappiness, so much so that I must have heard at least a dozen times that year, I wish we'd never moved out of the old building. Now, that seems ridiculous, but that's human nature, isn't it? We don't like to change. We get set in our ways. God is going to make us uncomfortable. God is going to challenge us in ways that we cannot anticipate, we cannot predict, and that's a good thing. There's going to be occasion for people to bring opportunities before us that may cause us to say, is that who Green Tree is? I don't know what they're going to be. I don't know what the tensions may arise, but it's going to happen. And we need to be prepared for that. We need to go into this with our eyes open. Satan will want to mess this up. Human nature is such that we will mess it up. Are we going to be the kind of people who have the humility to say, maybe God is up to something that we haven't anticipated? I'd like to close with the words of 1 Peter 4, 8-11. When I read these words, I was so struck by them a few weeks ago in, in not even preparing for this sermon, but, I was, but just in thinking about the mood of the new church, I was so struck by these words because they seem so relevant, so apropos to what we're going to face in terms of the attitude we need to bring. We're going to change. God's going to begin to do some new things. How we respond to that will say a lot about our understanding of the kingdom of God. So I want to close, again, with these words. 
And I think these words ought to set a tone for how we approach the transition we're about to go through. And I would just suggest that you might think about these words in the weeks to come. You might take note of them in your Bible or just in your program or something and pull them out a month from now, two months from now, and reflect upon what they mean and how they're relevant to our circumstances. So let me read the words, reflect on them very shortly, and then we'll be done. 1 Peter 4, 8-11. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gifts you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Love each other deeply. Offer hospitality without grumbling. Use the gifts we've been given to serve others. Be faithful stewards of God's grace. Speak the very words of God. Serve in God's strength. And what's the goal? So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. If we can even begin to embody that, those kinds of attributes, if we can even begin to live with that kind of attitude, then this move into the new building will be an incredible statement of the goodness of God. As Peter says, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Let me close in prayer. Father, this is your church. We're your people. We mess it up. But you love us, and you use us, and we rejoice in that fact. And we pray that in the weeks and months ahead that we may move forward in the spirit of 1 Peter 4. May you help us to see, Lord, that this church is always for you, always about you. And may we live in the humility and the submission that that reality ought to impose upon us. Thank you, Father, for bringing us safely thus far, and may you carry Green Tree Community Church forward in your hands safely for years and years to come. We ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Would you stand with us and respond to Scott's words this morning? Amen.